10 verses 24 to 39. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher, and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? So have no fear of them. For nothing is covered that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will deny before my father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemy will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. Hallelujah. If you would please join me in prayer. Lord, uh, thank you for today, and thank you for our worship so far this morning. Lord, thank you for calling us here out of our beds, Lord, to gather with your bride and to sing praises to your name. Lord God, we pray, Father, that as we continue to worship this morning through your word and through Eucharist, Lord, Father, that you would be honored by our worship. Lord, that you would pour out your spirit among us, Lord, to worship you in spirit and in truth, and to open our minds and our ears and our hearts to believe and to hear and to understand, Lord, what you have inspired in your word, Lord, what you have preserved for us. And we pray these things in the name of the risen Christ. Amen. Well, every single word of our text uh, for today, and next week as well, uh, is a continuation of what Jesus began to build on last week in chapter 10. So if uh, you were unable to be here last week or have not had a chance to listen to the sermon audio from last week, if you feel a little out of place, I'm going to try to obviously keep that from happening because we can understand this on its own, but... Last week does add some context. So, <laughs> uh, But that being said, what we had last week and what we've had over the last few weeks is Jesus has commissioned us to take part in his ministry, right? To take part in his ministry of mercy that we saw 
through chapter 9 and into the end of chapter 9. And then beginning in chapter 10, he now began to empower his disciples and to empower us to heal the sick and to cast out demons and to even raise the dead. And he told us, as we went on through chapter 10, that persecution and rejection by doing the ministry that he has commissioned us to do, persecution and rejection are not only possible, but they are absolutely guaranteed. And so what he does then is he encourages his disciples there in the passage before ours this morning that disciples of the kingdom of heaven, people that would follow him, are to not fear persecution or rejection, but rather be wise as serpents when it comes and be innocent as doves. And so much of this text really echoes a lot. I was thinking about this in Sunday school this morning. It, was, it echoes a lot of our conversation from Sunday school about this pattern of creation and new creation and a new exodus in Christ. And so I, I went through Sunday school. I know uh, somebody may have noticed it, maybe not. Hopefully I was able to do it on the sly. I went through and I started writing stuff in the margin. So I'm going to try to add those in just because so much came, good came up in Sunday school this morning. So if you were unable to be in Sunday school this morning, when that is uploaded on Wednesday... Go listen to that because it was a great conversation. But um, So what he does then, picking up exactly right where we left off last week, we left off in 1023, picking up then in 1024 and 25, Jesus tells us, he's still continuing that conversation. He says, look, persecution and rejection are guaranteed, but do not be afraid. And so again, he says this, he says, a disciple is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant to be like his master. And if they call the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign, how much more will they insult those of his household? So what Jesus is doing then is he begins now with this word. It's kind of a blended aspect. It's a word of warning of the reality of persecution, right? This is a guaranteed occurrence that's going to happen when you identify with me and when you begin to proclaim who I am to the world. You're going to be persecuted. But he also is giving us a bit of encouragement as Christian disciples. He tells us plainly, he said, look, if the world hates me, if the world will reject me, then we shouldn't be all that surprised when the world hates and rejects you for being found in me, right? This... These two verses, really, over the last few weeks, we've kind of had a key verse that Jesus is kind of circling his entire aspect around as he follows it. And these are those key verses for today. And so in this culture, though, and really in many similar cultures today, a master of a household was almost revered in his home. If if you were the, the leader of the home, you almost had a special status. Right? You were, in some ways, completely above criticism and untouchable because of the way that that culture works. Because this is the master's house. Right? This is his home. He rules in his house. And his word is both law and justice. Right? Whatever the master says goes. And so what Jesus is telling us here, he says, look, if anyone is going to be more than comfortable at insulting a guy that is supposed to be above criticism in his own house, if they come into his house and they insult him and they reject him, then they're obviously and very naturally going to feel more than comfortable to do much more to the simple members of the household. Interesting, he uses this term here, and I I thought about this this morning, um, not in Sunday school, actually at home, Uh, this phrase, Beelzebul. So this is totally going off script now, right? Beelzebul, I... I asked Sharon this morning before I left, um, 
kind of what, when she's heard this word uh, spoken or, or taught on, like, what is the, the first name that comes to mind? And she said, well, I, she said, every time I've ever heard it taught, it, we're speaking of Satan. And I think, in some ways, this is absolutely correct. Well, I did a little research this morning and realized that Beelzebul, and I don't know if this is really a Greek rendition of it or what, but by this time, Beelzebul was also understood to be Baal. So you're looking at the Old Testament Canaanite god of Baal, or Baal, or Baal, however you want to pronounce his name. And so what, the, what, what Jesus is telling us here, and this is all I'm going to say about this and we'll move on, is that if someone is comfortable maligning or insulting or rejecting the master of the house by calling him a false god, then do not be surprised when a world that is going to reject him as god mocks you and claims that you worship a false god. This is what Jesus is telling us. Theodore of Mopsuestia, who came up in Sunday school this morning, encourages us here, though. He says this. He says, We, who are made like Christ by adoption, can never go beyond our own nature. But to be made like our teacher is the highest end that we can reach. And so what Theodore is helping us understand and what Jesus is telling us here is that this is what it means to be identified fully in the Lord Jesus Christ, especially in the eyes of the world. And now that we as his disciples, his called ones, his sent out ones to proclaim who he is, and we have been empowered by the indwelling Holy Spirit, and now that we have been given his own authority over sickness and death and demons... We have now become not above our master, but exactly like our master in both his mission to the world and in his rejection from the world. Chrysostom writes here, he says, what Christ is saying to us as the faithful believers is this, as the faithful church. He says, I share with you the same stigma that you are suffering, and that is sufficient for your encouragement because I, your master and Lord, have felt the same grief that you now feel. So it is a privilege, it should be our privilege to act like, to suffer like, be rejected like, and be fully identified with Jesus in the eyes of the world. And though persecution and rejection are guaranteed, he tells us though in the next few verses, he says, look, but don't, don't be afraid of this. Because you are completely valuable to God. You have value to the Lord God. And so he says this in the next few verses, he says, so... Have no fear of them, right? Have no fear of those who would call you a worshiper of a false god. Have no fear of those who can harm you. He says, for nothing is covered that will be revealed. That will not be revealed, excuse me. Nothing is covered that will not be revealed. Let me say that appropriately. And there is nothing hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are numbered. So fear not. You are of more value than many sparrows. Jesus, three times in these verses, uses this phrase, do not fear, in some form or fashion. He tells us very plainly, don't be afraid. Fear not. He said, instead, when persecution and rejection arise, continue to proclaim the gospel with boldness. Right? Continue to heal the sick. You're going to be rejected, but heal the sick. 
You're going to be rejected, but raise the dead. You're going to be rejected and hated on my namesake, but cast out those demons. Because all that anyone can do is kill you for being bold in Christ. That's it. Right? He says the worst thing that can happen to you as a believer who calls upon my name is that they actually kill you. Right? Now that sounds pretty bad, right? So, but if all a person can do is kill your mortal body, then while that sounds terrifying, there's absolutely nothing to fear because the soul lives on. And, just as importantly, the body will be raised and glorified with Christ. Right? That's the gospel, right? That's part of the gospel, right? So he tells us, he says, look, there's no reason to fear this because those who would persecute you, those who would hate you, those who would malign you and call you a worshiper of a false god, they might be able to kill your body, but they don't have the authority to send you to hell. God does, right? And Solomon tells us here in Proverbs, he says, he says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of both knowledge and wisdom, but the fear of man is a snare, right? It's a trap, right? To quote Admiral Atbar from Return of the Jedi, right? It's a trap, right? So the fear of man is a trap. Don't be afraid of men. It's a trap. The fear of death and dying runs strong in every single one of us, right? I mean, we have a fight or flight instinct that is built in every creature, and we're no different. But Jesus tells us here, he says, look, we are to overcome the fear of death by fearing God instead. And he says, look, if, you had only, if we only had the eyes to properly perceive and understand how short life is, but also if we could properly perceive the unfathomable duration of eternity, we would rightly have an understanding of a fear of God and the judgment of God over the wrath of humanity. So the prospect of death is absolutely frightening, right? Nobody wants to die. But the prospect of eternal death is far worse. Which is exactly why we go out in boldness and proclaim the gospel and to heal the sick and to cast out demons and to raise the dead. So he says instead, fear God because God is more powerful than any persecutor because God alone is sovereign over your body and your soul. And God alone has the power and authority to judge us, not humanity. So, but notice though, he tells us something else here. He says, God is to be feared, yes, but God also values you. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 2, he says that we as the church, we are like living stones who have been rejected by men, but in the sight of God, he says, you are chosen. And you're not only chosen by God, but you are precious to God. The psalmist tells us precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Right? And so Jesus tells us here, he says, here's how precious you are to God. He states that God takes great care of even the smallest details of life, all the way down to tiny sparrows and even the numbers of hair on your head. So if God takes notice of, and this is the question Jesus is asking, he doesn't present it as a question, but it's almost a rhetorical question. He says, look, if God takes notice of and if God cares for and if God finds value in even the smallest sparrow or something as to us as in seemingly consequential as the hairs that we have on our head, then how much more do you think God cares for you? Sparrows, are, they're not the smallest birds. I actually looked this up because I was curious. There is, there's a thing called, I think it's called a, a palm hummingbird. I could be wrong, but it's a, it's a hummingbird that's literally, it will fit into the palm of your hand. It's very, very tiny. It weighs less than like a tenth of an ounce. It's a super tiny bird. 
But a sparrow weighs about as much. A male sparrow can get as heavy as one and a half ounces. You know, that's a hefty bird, right? No, it's a very small bird. But most people, unless you have bird feeders in your yard or you have you know, pet birds, you don't really take notice of sparrows, right? Sparrows are fun to watch. One of my favorite movies as a kid is actually a Swedish movie that they dubbed in English, which I adore. It's an animated movie, and it's called Willie the Sparrow, and it's a parable about caring for God's creation. It's, it's a, I actually found it on DVD at Goodwill, and it was one of my most favorite finds at Goodwill. But uh, such a because I only ever had it on VHS, and nobody has a v, VCR player, you know, VCR anymore. But anyway, but sparrows have very little value in our economy, right? And in this type of sacrificial economy, sparrows cost less than a penny, right? This this is more than less a day's wages if you were to look at the Greek. But Jesus tells us, he says, God, God even takes notice of the life and death of very tiny birds because they are his creation. And he loves them and he cares for them. And the idea of God caring for the, even the numbers of hair on our heads really is a theme that goes throughout a lot of scripture. Right? God cares even, he numbers the hairs on your head, which reminds us of God's providence over us. He knows us so perfectly and he knows us so well that, and he watches over every details of our lives so carefully that the God who is sovereign over creation and over the universe and over history even takes care of the number of hairs that are on our heads. And he cares about that. Now, this doesn't mean that if you have less hairs than you had decades ago that God does not care for you as much as he used to, right? I'm, I, I see a few of you guys in the room, right? <laughs> I think I have a few less than I used to in a couple places. I get to hide it well, though, right, with, with comb-overs and stuff. But, but since, since humanity is worth more than sparrows, right, and since God cares for each sparrow, and since God even cares for matters like the number of hairs on your head, then again, how much do you think he cares about you and your, and your well-being and the state of your eternal soul? And the only answer that we can find for this question cannot, we can't, is that we cannot begin to fathom how much God cares for us. And the only measuring gauge that we have is the death and resurrection of Christ. That's the only way we understand how much God cares for us. He cares so much that he sent the only begotten son to die and to rise from the dead. Chrysostom writes here, he says, Jesus does not mean that if the sparrow falls by God's direct will, then it is because the sparrow is unworthy. That's not what God is saying. That's not what Jesus is saying. He says, Chrysostom says, but Jesus is instead saying that there is nothing that occurs in all of creation that is not hidden from God's sight. Right? So Chrysostom asks, he says, if then, if God is not ignorant of anything that happens in creation, and if God loves us so much as to have numbered our very hairs, then we need not be afraid of anything. Instead, fear God, but know that he cares for you and that God is valuable, or you are valuable to God. But then Jesus does this thing in the rest of this passage that kind of, I mean, even as I read through it, every time you almost have to stop and pause and think about what he's saying. Because he, he, I told Sharon, I used, uh, last week I used uh, hiking illustrations, right? We were going on trailblazes and camping. This week, for some reason, my brain went full military because what Jesus does at the end here, he just he carpet bombs us with these three very, very hard truths. 
that we have to deal with. And every time we think about these, you can automatically imagine the response that somebody would get if they're not familiar with what Jesus is saying. And so this first hard truth is in the next couple of verses, and he, he, it relates to denial. He says this. He says, so, right? He's, he's almost changing gears here with this word, so. He says, so, after all these things I just said, everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But... Whoever denies me before men, I will deny before my Father who is in heaven. That's a hard pill to swallow. Right? When I was a kid, I, I, I used to always get pneumonia and the flu. Like every January, February, I was always sick. And one year, I forget, I don't know if it was, I don't know if that's what I had or what, but they gave me this pill that I was like maybe seven. And it, was, it wasn't even a pill an adult could swallow whole. Like it was a massive pill. And my mom had to cut it in like quarters for me to even swallow, which made the medicine very, you could taste it, and it was just super nasty, right? But this, so this, this hard truth is one of those giant horse pills that you have to swallow that it's hard to deal with. You, it gets stuck in your crawl, right? But it, it's hard to deal with because, especially as we have been filtering the last few weeks, everything through this aspect of the Great Commission, where Jesus tells us at the very end of Matthew's Gospel that he will literally be with us always, or he will be with us forever and ever and ever, to the age of ages, until eons and eons, until through eternity. This is what he means by that phrase. So, how are we then supposed to understand this statement here in Matthew 10 in relation to Jesus' promise to never abandon us? Right? That, that's a valid question. You come to this and he says, I'm going to deny you if you deny me. Well, you said you'd be with me always, so how do I deal with that? Well, the answer to that question relates or it comes by us understanding rightly the word deny. Right? So he says again, whoever denies me before men, I will deny before my Father who is in heaven. In the Greek, this word, like most Greek words, can be translated many, many different ways. So here are a few. Now we have to deny in our bulletins and in the ESV, but some other translations might read one of these. Another word could be to repudiate or to renounce or even to disown. Right? Another word that could be familiar to us would be to reject. Now, in relation to Matthew 10, that word sounds very familiar in the context of what we have been looking at over the last few weeks. What, what was it exactly in Matthew 10, 14 that Jesus told his disciples to do if a town or a home did not receive them. If a town or a home rejected them, he says, get up and shake off the dust, right? This is, they have rejected you, you get up and you reject them. And he says, this is not because they have rejected you, but rather they have rejected me. That house had the gospel proclaimed to it. And they had healing offered to them. They had demons cast out of their demon-possessed family members. And they had even seen the dead raised. And their only response was to reject or repudiate the work of God among them. And so this is how we should understand Jesus' statement here in Matthew 10, 32 and 33. He says, I am the focus of your entire work and your entire life. Now, you have been sent out to proclaim my name. And your name is now associated with my name. And your identity is is associated with me fully and completely. And so when we publicly proclaim Christ, 
We are publicly proclaiming to the world an allegiance to the Lord Jesus. His person, his work, his death, his resurrection, and his return. We are telling the world, I belong to him. And in doing so, Jesus tells us here in verse 32, he says, I will then publicly proclaim my allegiance to you in the presence of God the Father, both in this moment and through all eternity. However, and this is the hard pill of this, if we publicly deny him, if we repudiate or reject or disown or renounce, then he tells us that he will publicly do the same in the presence of God the Father, both now and on the day of judgment. I never knew you. Now let's be clear here, because I think this is, this is necessary so that way we don't have confusion as we go about our week. This is not a simple failure to witness or to speak up when the opportunity arises. I think every single one of us that have believed in Christ for a long time have had moments that we've let pass by, and we can think about them, and we regret it. That's not what Jesus is saying. He is saying this is a public rejection. This is a public repudiation of who I am, of the work that I've done, of the death that I died, of the resurrection that I was raised in, and in the fact that I have promised you I will return. You are rejecting me. Another word that some of us might know is the word apostasy. This is a person who fully turns their back on the Lord Jesus Christ. Chrysostom says this, and I love this. He says, It is not by some power within ourselves that we make our confession of faith, but only by the help and the grace of God. So, he says, if you deny the Son, then the Son will deny you in the presence of the Father. The blame of being forsaken rests upon you, not on God. You make your confession through grace, but if you reject that grace then it is you who have forsaken God. In speaking this hard truth, Jesus reminds us, and he says very clearly, that our status before God the Father is completely and totally dependent upon our relationship with himself. How we relate to Christ is how we are seen before God the Father. There's another hard truth that he goes into here. And it's in verses 34 through 36. And he says this then. So on the heels of denial, he says, let's talk about division. And so he says, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not, to come, I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Now this is a hard truth because it directly relates to how we envision the ministry of Christ to the world. right? So every Christmas and every Advent we sing carols that proclaim Jesus as meek and mild. right? We sing hymns and carols about him lying his, laying his glory aside in humility. And as Paul tells us in Philippians 2, taking on the form of a slave and becoming obedient to the point of death on a shameful cross, or a shameful death on a cross. We proclaim him as the Prince of Peace. Right? We even see this name given to him in the book of Isaiah. So how are we to understand this aspect of division from Jesus? Right? He tells us exactly, he says, 
I did not come to bring peace. You're not, we're not wrong to call him the Prince of Peace, but I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. Because that sword is the sword of the gospel itself. And the cosmic truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ is a dividing line. This is one of the other things we brought out in Sunday school this morning, this aspect of like the exodus and the plagues of Yahweh and His deliverance of His people. Like Yahweh separating the Israelites from the, from the Egyptians, except those who left with them. Like Yahweh separating them through the Red Sea. The Lord formed the chaotic waters of creation like separating the land from the water. The gospel is a new creation work and the gospel is a dividing line. The gospel unites God's people but it divides us. It separates us like the dry land from the waters. It consecrates us from the rest of the world. And it draws clear divisions between those who belong to the Lord and those who do not. And so what the gospel does is that it intentionally divides those who accept Christ from those who reject Christ. So persecution and rejection, the reason that persecution and rejection from the world happens is because of the division of the gospel. And that division runs deep. And he tells us here, he says, even among sometimes parents and their children. So when the truth of the gospel, when the truth of Christ Jesus enters into a society or it enters into a home, a line is immediately drawn and a decision has to be made. And those decisions can sometimes result in a family member turning against another one. And as we saw even last week, sometimes that means a family member betraying another to the point of death. But peace is the result of salvation that Christ brings, creating a critical tension between the believer and the unbeliever. The believer finds peace with God, but the believer also finds opposition from the world who has rejected Christ. And so what Jesus is describing just in these few verses is just yet another battlefield in the arena of spiritual warfare. So the truth of Emmanuel, the truth of God with us, is that his message and his person and his work divide. In Christ and in his church, in his people, the kingdom of heaven has declared war and has mounted an invasion against the kingdom of hell, which has its grips on the minds and hearts of the world. And every single kingdom, and we've seen this played out in real time over the last year and a half in Eastern Europe, every single, every single kingdom who is invaded responds. Persecution and rejection are the response to an invasion force of the gospel and its people. One church father wrote this, he said, If Jesus did not come to bring peace, then why did all the prophets publish his peace as good news? Because, he says, because this, more than anything, is true of peace, that, disease, that the disease of sin is removed and that cancer of sin is cut away. And with only such radical surgery is it possible for heaven to be reunited with earth. Another father states this. He says that there is, a, there is two kinds of peace. He says there is a good peace but there's also an evil peace, and he explains himself. He says, so a good peace is found among the faithful and among just people. He says, for faith is born through the word of God, but it is preserved through peace and nourished by love. But on the other hand, there is an evil peace among unbelievers. 
He says, among unbelievers is a single sinfulness and a common agreement to sin. And this is why Christ is called the Prince of Peace, but yet did not come to bring peace. He came to destroy the evil peace that exists among sin and to bring true peace with God born through his death and his resurrection and given to all who believe. The existence of evil demands warfare. And just like chaos and darkness came before the first creation, so too will chaos and darkness, division and strife, come in the time of the new creation found in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The third and final hard truth speaks to our worthiness. And we've already talked about our value to God, but Jesus gets to our worthiness here. He says this in verse 37. He says, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He says the same thing in verse 38, but we'll deal with that one in a moment. So this hard truth is is extremely hard to deal with because we live in a culture, and we especially live in a church culture, that has an issue with what I have heard coined among our own as the cult of family. This is the issue of the cult of family. Children and grandchildren are indeed a gift from the Lord, right? Psalm 127, the Lord tells us in Psalm 127, it says that children are like arrows in the hands of a warrior. And blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He, has, he shall not be put to shame when he sits at the gates, right? He has a lot of children and they will honor their father. They will honor the master of the house, Godly parents are a gift from the Lord. Godly spouses are a gift from the Lord. Solomon tells us in Proverbs 18 that he who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from Yahweh. My favorite paraphrase of Proverbs 31 comes from who I will call a lyrical poet. His name is Toby McKeehan. And Toby McKeehan was one of the lead singers of DC Talk, which was an old uh, contemporary Christian band. And in 1992, they put out this really awesome album called Free at Last. It was a Grammy Award winning album and it is I think it's great but most people hate it. But anyway, uh, but he paraphrases Psalm 31 in there and he says this in his, in his uh, old school vanilla ice type rapping tone. And He says, charm is deceitful but beauty is vain. But a woman who fears the Lord, she ain't playing. Hear what I'm saying because I'm saying it clearly. She's the kind of girl I gots to have near me. <laughs> He is saying, the point is, and that what Toby is getting at is what Jesus is getting at is what Solomon was getting at, is that a godly family is a wonderful blessing from the Lord. However, and this is a giant, bold, italicized, massive print, however, we can turn any good gift from God into an idol. And that includes family. And Jesus is very clear here. He draws the dividing line of the gospel. He says, if you place your family above your obedience and love of me, if you place your spouse, your parents, your children, or your grandchildren above your obedience and your love of me, then you are not only engaging in false worship, but you are not worthy to belong to me. That's a hard truth to swallow. And this brings us to what is the painful cost of discipleship, right? Because we have to place Christ above everything in our lives. And he uses this word love here. And now we have, Greek has multiple meanings of the word love. 
And the definition of love has been completely torn asunder in our own culture. But Jesus understands this here. He says, look, love, he obviously understands there is a deep love and a deep affection and loyalty between parents and their children, between grandchildren and grandparents. But he demands here, he says, look, I demand a deeper commitment from you than what you can ever even assume to give to your family. If Jesus is not first, then we do not deserve to be, or nor are we worthy to be his disciple. So he tells us in these final two verses, he tells us what to do. Here's how we are made worthy of him in this text. He says that we are worthy of him by obeying his commands, by bearing our crosses, and giving our lives for the sake of the kingdom of heaven and for the glory of his name. And so he says this, he says, and whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. To be worthy of Christ means to be completely identified with him and with his name and with the gospel that he has commissioned us to go and to proclaim. And he illustrates this here with this violent illustration of a cross, right? In this culture, I mean, we all know this, right? If we understand anything about the first century culture in which Jesus walked the earth, they knew under Roman rule what a cross was, right? People were crucified on the street sides. Nero is famously known for using crucified Christians as nighttime torches to have parties in the courtyards of the imperial palace. Crosses were a very vivid symbol in this culture. And so a condemned prisoner in this culture who was bearing their own cross was considered not as good as dead. They were considered as already dead. There is no hope for a prisoner carrying his own cross. There is no stay of execution in this culture. You were condemned to death, you were dead. And so Jesus is saying to be worthy to be my disciple is to consider yourself as dead to self and alive to me. And Jesus' meaning could not be clearer. He says to carry our cross means death to our self-interest, death to our selfish desires, death to who we are, and be ready to give everything for the person and work of Christ. Just as he himself did, making us even more like our teacher and like our master. We are identified with our master. And so now that we have been empowered by him, we have been indwelled by his spirit, and we have been commissioned to go, let us go in boldness. And do not fear and do not deny. Instead, take up your cross, die to yourself, and publicly proclaim your allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ, because he is worth it. Amen.